Throw this down for a catch. Uh, I don't have a quarrel with you, teacher. But we've been doing this all night. Nothing. Welcome to the Brewery Ministries podcast. This is the chosen retrospective series hosted by Nathan. Will you do us the honor, Rabbi? If that's where you keep the white sardines. Jason. Teacher, you have moved us all. John. Looks like we're not the only ones taxing the people. And Nick. It's the biggest pile of dung in all Capernaum. <laughs> this episode will contain spoilers. We recommend watching the episode before listening to the podcast. I'm on official business. Only Roman business is official business. Today we are discussing The Chosen, Season 2, Episode 6. This is Nathan. Jason. John. Nick. We are four guys from different perspectives, uh, having a good conversation about this show. It's been a lot of fun. If you guys have questions for us you want us to discuss, email us at breweryministries at gmail.com or contact us through the Brewery Ministries Facebook page or Instagram page. I actually have a new podcast that's sort of a companion podcast to this. It's called Movies Are Spiritual. I got a crew of guys watching movies and looking for spiritual themes in popular movies. So we just did The Matrix. If you guys want to look up that show, that is now available. What we usually do on this podcast is our icebreaker is talking about which beer we brought to the table for our discussion. So uh, what do you guys got? Jason, you got anything? I got a... um a nitro milk stout by Firestone Brewing. Ooh, what's it taste like? Uh, a milk stout. <laughs> it's kind of chocolatey, a little bit. What about you, Nick? A little gingy ale. Canada Dry. Yes, sir. Good old-fashioned gingy ale. It's got ale in the name, so there you go. It's fake. Fake ale. What about you, John? You got anything? Coffee. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is that just coffee? Yeah. <laughs> you didn't put any Kahlua or anything in it? Kahlua? No, uh, I, I need the caffeine more than anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually have to go to work after this, so I did not bring a beer today. But there's a beer I recently discovered that I was going to tell you guys about. And it's ironic because it's also a Firestone beer, just like what Jason's drinking. But this one is Cinnamon Dolce Nitro Stout. It's pretty good. So I got this beer, I had some people over, and I had this beer out, and Heath, one of my friends, tried it first. And I said, so how's that beer? And he's like, uh, it kind of sucks. So he told me it tasted like nutmeg. So then I was like really disappointed. I'm like, oh, I was really looking forward to this beer. So I tried one, and I hated it for like two sips. But then like two or three sips later, I was like, I think this beer's good. And then a few sips later, I was like, this is the best stout I've had in a long time. So cinnamon dolce nitro stout. It'll kind of shock your taste buds at first, but it's really good and really smooth. Have you guys ever had that one? No. no it sounds like it just had to warm up. Yeah, you might be right. Yeah, if I, some stouts, if you drink them ice cold, they taste like metal to me. Oh. Yeah. When I first heard that people in England 
drink warm stouts like Germany and stuff. That kind of surprised me. I thought that was gross, but now it's like I want my stouts room temperature. It's also flat cask. It's not carbonated. You just pull a lever and it flows out. Oh. Not like uh, carbonation or anything. Kind of like a Guinness. Like Guinness? No. Guinness would be carbonated. When you get them in the UK, they're not. They come out of the cask. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Sorry. I'm not well-traveled. In England, they taste closer to a nitro? The nitros foam up a lot. They don't foam up over there like that. Oh, okay. Ooh. I mean, they get a little head on them, but it's not just like here. So to get a legit Guinness, we got to go over to England, learning about beer. All right. Well, before we dive into this episode, I did a little research on some stuff we were talking about last episode. I like to occasionally give the listeners kind of some nuggets to think about and see if they want to look into. We were kind of talking about there being a gap between when the New Testament accounts were written down and uh, the first actual manuscripts that we have. That gap kind of makes us uncomfortable at times. So we were talking about, did stuff get inserted into the New Testament stories? So I actually was curious. I wanted to know what some non-religious scholars thought about that. So I spent a couple hours looking up what they had to say about this. And what I found was there were several guys who are atheist scholars. There is something that they think was inserted possibly into the New Testament. Maybe two things, but it's not what I expected. So check this out. First, uh, the scholars I was looking at were Bart Ehrman. He's like one of the more famous Bible scholars right now, but he's either agnostic or an atheist. Gerd Ludman, James Crossley, and Michael Gouldner. So all of these guys, they think that for the most part, what we have in the New Testament is actually what those writers wrote. So it's the supernatural stuff, they don't think it was inserted. They don't believe it for other reasons, but... The thing that they thought was inserted, take a guess. What do you think they thought was inserted? The virgin birth. I didn't see anything about that. That wouldn't surprise me if someone had that. All right, I'll tell you. It's the verse about women not speaking in church. Ah. The reason why is because in some manuscripts, that's at like the end of a chapter. In some manuscripts, it's like up in the middle of the chapter. And that usually means it started out as a footnote. They think it was a footnote that eventually got copied up into the chapter and different scribes put it in different places. But nobody knows if Paul made that footnote or if a scribe made the footnote. The other scholars I mentioned, so they think that Mark and Matthew and all of them and Paul really think they saw the resurrected Jesus. They just think that those guys were wrong about what they saw. Like Bart Ehrman thinks that a couple of the guys who thought they saw Jesus after he died and came back from the dead, they were convinced that they'd seen him, but they really hadn't. And they were so convincing when they told the story that the others became convinced that they had also seen Jesus. That's kind of what those guys believe. That's like the core concept of Christianity. Yeah. It's interesting because I don't know that those guys exactly call the Bible history, but those documents on the New Testament pass their historical tests. They just have different reasons for not. I got an observation. Would you say Bart Ehrman? Yeah. Okay, so is he really an expert, though? I mean, if you look at his, I just Googled him. I've heard of him before. His PhD 
is from a theological seminary in Princeton, and is, he has he has a master's degree in divinity. Yeah. So it doesn't seem like he's really a, a not religious at all if his degrees are actually in that field. It's because he's an ex-Christian, actually. Also, he's an ex-Christian. Okay. Yeah, yeah. He's a really interesting case because a lot of Christians antagonize him, and he feels misunderstood. So he actually says he loves the Gospels. He just doesn't believe them. He has like a evolution of religion mindset where he feels like people used to be more predispositioned to the supernatural beliefs. And over time, kind of going through the Enlightenment, people have worked their way out of that. That's kind of where he's coming from. It was interesting. I always like to see what different views think and stuff like that. You guys got any thoughts on that? Yeah, it doesn't completely play into that, but I did watch a, a special where they, they claimed that civilizations over time technologically rise and fall. So, like, you know, we had the Dark Ages, right? And then prior to that, we had, you look at, I don't know, Rome and, and all those big, amazing civilizations. So you talk about older ancient times people being predisposed to the supernatural well if we believe that technology and knowledge you know has these peaks and valleys over time where in that peak and valley did the belief in the supernatural fall you know what i mean mm-hmm. yeah i don't know that's interesting there's two guys on this list here so bart ehrman when we were looking at the dates for the gospels he's gonna date the book of mark after the 70s 70 a.d after the destruction of the temple. James Crosley is on this list. Now, he's an atheist, but his dating for Mark is 37 to 40. I don't know a whole lot about him, but he's got a book on his research. I just think it's interesting that those two guys are basically on the opposite ends of the the range of scholars on when they think that was written. So it's interesting. How are they atheists and they actually care about this? I don't know. I think some guys are just fascinated with the material. I mean, I guess if you're into ancient texts and stuff, it is kind of an interesting thing. Yeah. Be yeah. kind of like somebody studying Norse mythology or something. Uh, okay. All right. I'll buy that. Doesn't James Crossley teach at a religious college? Yes. Yes. I was shocked. <laughs> so he is at St. Mary's, but he's an atheist. I don't know, man. Was the, I'm, I'm going to look these two guys up. I mean, I, I question the validity of I mean, they got religion written all over them. I mean, one guy's got a PhD in divinity, and the other guy teaches at a religious school. I mean, are they really biased? But it is interesting that they can't actually narrow down a date either. Yeah. Well, the hang-up for Bart, and there were two other scholars I saw that the reason they date Mark late is because there's that scripture about Jesus predicting that the temple's going to be destroyed. And all three of them said... It's impossible for somebody to be able to predict the future, so we're going to date it after the temple was destroyed. The view of whether or not Jesus has you know, divine knowledge plays into the date there. See, that's interesting, though, because then I wonder, well, do they view that story as something that was inserted after the fact or not? So I don't know. It's interesting. I'd like to see kind of their rationale and their thinking, where they're kind of getting that. I'd like to kind of see that a little bit. Do you know who the other two guys are? Gerd Ludman or Michael Guldner? No, I'll look them up later. Okay. I've seen those guys' names around, but those are the two I don't know much about. To your point, I had a hard time like trying to figure out who were non-religious scholars who were studying this stuff, because for a while I had to weed through 
all, all the actual Christian or Catholic scholars who were studying this stuff. And it was like difficult to find non-religious scholars who were actually looking at this stuff and trying to come up with dates. So. Okay, so do you guys want to jump into this episode? Let's do it. It's rock and roll. Well, I always start off with the IMDb plot synopsis. This episode's called Unlawful. Mary Magdalene reverts to her old habits. Simon and Matthew bring her home. Jesus heals a withered hand, and his disciples pluck wheat on the Sabbath. The Pharisees accuse them, and Jesus pronounces that he is Lord of the Sabbath. The opening scene here, we see David show up at the temple begging for the sacred bread. (laughs) All right, tell me, were you guys confused by the scene? I just want to know if you understood what was going on. Was that David from like David and Goliath? Yep. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah, it it took me a minute to kind of like catch on to that. I had no idea what, what was happening. The priest that's there, that's Ahimelech. Do you guys know anything, Jason? Do you know anything about this, the rituals here? Nope, I don't know anything. That's, that's, that's the first time I've ever seen it. I was going to look it up later today. I think this comes out of Leviticus and Exodus, with so these rules for the tabernacle and the priests. So the priest there, Ahimelech, uh, all the priests had like a privilege of eating this bread that they called the showbread, and they displayed it in the temple. And once a week... They could eat the old bread and then replace it with the new bread, right? So this bread's called the bread of the presence, and it was supposed to be something that when they ate it, they had to go to a a holy place, which I assume is somewhere in the temple, not exactly sure which room. The idea was they were sharing a meal with God when they ate this bread, and apparently this is something that other religions did too, besides the people of Israel. So this is supposed to be bread that's saved for this sacred meal with God. So when David rolls in and wants to take that bread and eat it, he's not really allowed to do that. Now, there was a word that David uttered. It was Pikash Nefesh. I thought it was like Pikachu from Pokemon. (laughs) I didn't know what this was. So I looked it up and this whole concept is actually pretty important because anytime that Jesus is accused of breaking the Jewish laws, this clause might play into that. The Pikash Nefesh says a Jew had an obligation to save a life if they could. So, for example, it's against the law to work on the Sabbath, but then this Pikash Nefesh might kick in if somebody's dying and there's a doctor there. Yeah, he's not supposed to work on the Sabbath, but he can make an exception if it's to save a life. So it's a loophole. Yes, So that was interesting to me because after I found that out, I started wondering, well, did Jesus actually break the law in any of these instances? Like at the end of this episode, we'll see. I guess we'll talk about whether or not Jesus actually did anything wrong. Do you know what happens to Ahimelech after the story? King Saul is trying to kill David. David's on the run, and that's when he shows up and asks for the bread. He's got an army with him, and they're hungry. So Ahimelech gives David this bread and then won't give Saul any information. And Saul kills Ahimelech, the priest in this scene, and he kills 85 other priests. That's from 1 Samuel 22. Hmm. We don't get to see that guy die on screen, but that's what happens to him. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, this is a confusing section, but it, it is interesting. There's a lot to 
look into if you're really into that. Well, knowing the whole story, I think kind of <laughs> changes the dynamic of it a little bit. Yeah, it's a little dark. <laughs> oh, oh, it gets darker. Uh, tell me what you think of this. That first Samuel verse 22, verse 19, it says this. At Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep. So Saul killed all the kids and the livestock too. At least he's thorough. I mean, kudos to that. If it breathes, just kill it. So it kind of sets up the series then that the rules ain't that stringent. There's loopholes to everything. And you see Jesus kind of does that also later on. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, if you're going to be hunted down and killed for breaking a rule, <laughs> it, uh, it seems like there might be some consequences there. But that's fascinating to me. And it, again, you got to think that that seems more like a political play that's happening rather than a religious consequence. He had to have known that there was some sort of opportunity for retaliation for him helping David. Yeah, I think you're exactly right, because Saul started out as a good king, but he kind of went crazy. So (laughs) next we see Matthew and Simon waking up in the morning, trying to get ready and figure out how they're going to find Mary, who ran off at the end of the previous episode. So these guys really don't know how to boil eggs? (laughs) I would think that... They're going to have at least some life skills. I mean, unless you just like got married after he, before he even left his mama's house. I mean, he's out fishing for days on end and all this stuff. At least able to do basic cooking and stuff. The end of this this scene with the Roman walking up, I kind of miss the importance of the part of that. I'm with you there. Well, he was talking about the night of the nomad, I think is what he said. I'm assuming it has something to do with what Mary was potentially participating in was kind of the impression I got. He mentioned something about some stairs because Matthew said, what stairs is he talking about? I think the purpose of that Roman was just to give information for the audience. Good call. I can tell you how I read that scene the first time. (laughs) (laughs) In hindsight, I'm like, oh, this is way off. Like my mind was in the gutter. But when that soldier comes up the stairs and he says like, oh, I can barely walk or something. I'm like, oh, she went back to prostitution. Like, she slept with this guy, and now he can't walk because they had such a wild night. I, I was actually excited about this episode at that point because I was like, oh, like, how far off the wagon is she going to fall? And they're going to have to deal with some interesting concepts in this episode. But then a little bit later, I'm like, wait, no, I don't think that was right. I think that guy was just drunk. Oh, Am I the only one who thought that? Uh, you gotta get your mind out of the gutter. Yeah, <laughs> I, I thought he was drunk for sure, but I like your interpretation. I had a similar expectation of what she was going to do, but I, I definitely did not pick up on that from the scene. <laughs> well, I was excited because the bigger the slip up, the more intriguing that confrontation with Jesus was going to be. And right. if she's forgiven the bigger of a forgiveness that is if the grievance is bigger, you know? So in upcoming scenes, we, there's still more opportunities for you to think that like she was going to do even grander. Well, similar things. Yeah. Yeah. There's like hints in this episode. For instance, I think you're right. We were supposed to understand that they were at the nomad and that's how Matthew and Simon found out where to go. But when she's sitting there gambling, I'm trying to figure out, is this the group's money? 
because she didn't really have any money when they found her. So I'm assuming that she's gambling away the whole group's money. Wow. Except for she won. Yeah, I was going to say, is, is it gambling it away if she wins? Yeah, but she left it on the table. Oh, right. she definitely did, yeah. You're right. Which is confusing, though, because when they come back and find her, that guy who lost all that money is upset, and he says, she took me for everything I had. And I'm thinking, wait, I just saw her leave the money on the table and walk <laughs> away. So where'd the money go? Somebody must have picked it up because that guy still didn't get his money back. Or he took it all and he's playing it off like, oh, I, I lost everything. Yeah. Could it just be a plot inconsistency? That's what I was wondering. First of all, I never, I mean, to get back, you said you thought that she went back to prostitution. I actually never thought she was a prostitute. Doesn't the scripture say she was an adulteress? I think we talked about that before. Yeah. And so that's probably why I didn't think that. And so I think she's probably not a prostitute either. But I think that the show thinks she's a prostitute. Yeah, probably so. Yeah. Thinking something, whether it was for money or pleasure. How about that? (laughs) But you know what? Later on, when the priests are talking about the rules and stuff, I mean, I mean, if the husband dies and there's no witnesses, then I mean, it's all this like crazy crap. Like if she gets remarried, she's in trouble. There's a lot of ways for women to get a bad name when they're not really doing anything. Yeah. So if I watch Purdy die, it happened. But if my wife watches Purdy die, didn't happen. Nope, still alive. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much. <laughs> Wait, time out. Who who saw who saw Jesus resurrected first? It's Mary. That's Mary Magdalene, I think. Yeah. But we don't believe a woman if she didn't see we don't believe a woman. So how do we see what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. That's why in other places it says Cephas saw Jesus first and not Mary Magdalene. Oh, okay. Got her. All right. So nobody knows where the money went then. If we decide that's just a plot inconsistency. I mean, maybe we'll find out. The guy that was standing up there looked like he was friends with her. I thought maybe he took it. Oh. I mean, someone took it. It looked like a bunch of scallywags there. I mean, they're not going to just leave a bag of money sitting there. That word needs to be worked into every episode. <laughs> scallywags, like pirate. Since we're on that scene, the, the part where the guy stands up and he's like, I'll show you a woman's place or whatever he says. I was like, oh, well, she's getting taken out back. She looked like she wanted to get beat right there. I know. I looked at her face and I thought, she hates herself in this moment and actually is inviting punishment. That's what I was reading on her face. Yep. Sad. So then we see Matthew and Simon, who are kind of an ironic duo here because they don't like each other. They're forced to work together, and they find her sitting outside of the Nomad. She's wrestling with the pressure. doesn't feel like she can live up to being a follower of Jesus, so she's not wanting to go back. What did you think about this scene? I thought her throwing up was funny. (laughs) It's kind of interesting because you you talk about how far she strayed from the path sets up an even more interesting interaction with Jesus later on. But it seems like even with what she actually did, not what we assumed she did, it seems like she's still terrified. Like Jesus is going to take her out back to the woodshed, just beat her or something. I think it sets it up to show the, the core forgiveness that is essential in Christianity. I, I agree with Nick. I think it kind of sets it up the whole, we're not going to be perfect all the time. We're going to slip off. You know, we're going to revert back maybe old ways and we need to be forgiven. And it's okay if you 
miss up every once in a while that, like you said, the core idea of forgiveness. Yeah, I actually like that because sometimes people will teach Christianity like, oh, you become saved and you never mess up again. So that's part of why I was like, oh, yes, somebody's going to talk about this, that your struggles don't actually totally go away and you still got to battle them and things like that. Well, and I think it also shows the importance of acknowledging when you mess up, too. Uh, It kind of sets that up in order to really receive that forgiveness or accept the forgiveness. You have to acknowledge that, yeah, I, I made a mistake here. Yeah. Did you guys buy her acting here? Like she was a good actress or? Yeah. I was too too focused on kind of the, the Matthew and Simon interaction to kind of, I liked Matthew gives her this monologue and talks about, you know, how he's a better teacher because of her. And then he stops and looks over at Simon and he's like, get up there, your turn. <laughs> I like that. I don't think her acting was that good, but for some reason it seemed like she was more, I guess, feminine than the rest of the time. I don't know if it's because she had that thing on her hair and they just, she wasn't really doing women roles, I guess, but I don't know. They did something different with her there. She seemed too sober. <laughs> <laughs> I was really looking forward to this scene, but then when we were there, the first time I was watching it, I was like, what's going on? She's usually a pretty good actress, I think, and I didn't think she quite nailed it here. And it might be because the first time I watched it, I didn't realize that she was supposed to be drunk until halfway through that scene. Oh. I just thought it was like super depressed acting. And then I'm like, well, I've seen extremely depressed people and drunk people. So uh, what are they supposed to be like? I don't know. And then she threw up and I was like, oh, that was good acting. <laughs> so the next scene, we see Schwell and Yanni, these two guys that are trying to get Jesus in trouble for healing on the Sabbath and supposedly breaking their Jewish law, which now we're not so sure if he actually did anything wrong because of that Pikachu clause, Pikash Nefesh. Now, something really interesting to me happened during this scene. Shmuel and Yanni are talking to President Shimon's representative, and they're asking him to ask President Shimon to go after Jesus for breaking these laws. And Shimon's representative basically says, you know, Shimon's not interested in this stuff. He cares about the widows who are being mistreated and and people like that and the poor. But then he said something that just blew my mind. He said, Shimon actually wants to reform the law. The reason I thought that was fascinated was it asks this question, all those Old Testament laws, did all of those come from God or did some of those come from man? Because that statement, if you think that law came from God, you can't really reform it, right? But if some of those are from man, you can reform those. So that statement is saying that not all of these laws are actually God's divine laws, right? What do you think? There's no way they're all God's law. There's no way. The one point where they reference, and this is later on later on in the show, there's 613 rules that have to be followed. Dude, there's no way. Yep. I don't think a, a divine being would would lay out such a complex thing. The formality of, of religion is what, what tears me up, and this kind of highlights it. Well, how do you feel about the idea that some of those are man-made then? Well, it makes you question why why'd they write them. If we look back at the fact and we think that the people who wrote, you know, whichever gospel or whatnot, wrote 
what they saw with Jesus or what they heard from what Jesus said. Okay, if you didn't hear him say that, why are you writing it? If you didn't hear he believed that, why are you writing it? Or in the Old Testament, you know, I guess well, a lot of that came from Moses or I don't know the Old Testament very well, but same thing. If you don't believe it came from God, why are you writing it? This isn't your op-ed section on a Sunday morning. Like, I've got two theories here. I don't totally know the answer, but these two things are interesting. So one of the theories that I came across on Naked Bible Podcast is um, Michael Heiser went through this series on Exodus, and that's where some of the laws start. The Ten Commandments are given, and then a bunch of those additional laws start. Like uh, if your ox kills somebody, you know, you're liable and things like that. There's a theory among scholars that a lot of those 613 laws are amendments to existing cultural laws, like court rulings. So today, if we have a court ruling that becomes the standard for laws going forward, that's what some of these are. That could mean that, okay, in their country, this is how they're operating, but the people came up with that amendment. I mean, they're trying to do the best they can. They're trying to do what God wants them to do, but that's a man-made decision, not directly from God. So I found this interesting. The Jewish Talmud, ancient Jewish writing, they note that the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments are the only ones heard directly from God. And those two are, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall make no idols. So that's interesting. I don't know the answer to that. I'd have to go read the Ten Commandments chapter because I thought one teaching on the Ten Commandments, and again, you have to look this up because I don't know. I thought one teaching on the Ten Commandments was that God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses, like written himself. So I don't know. I have to go back and read that. But the idea that even if all Ten Commandments are the only thing that came from God or the first two, that's pretty fascinating to me. So I find that kind of interesting with the 613. One from that scene, I, I think a lot of times religion is, is a man-made construct. I mean, some of these laws and what you'll see, there's even debates between in the series with, with these people on what's righteous or what's not. I mean, they're having these different theories. Also, one thing I find interesting is you mentioned that some scholars think that the 613 were laws, like statutes or something like that. Religion does that today. I mean, if you look at, we had, what, the 18th Amendment that prohibited alcohol. That was based on religious law that was supposedly, if you're a Christian, you don't drink alcohol. And you can even see voting today, they do that. You're not a Christian if you do this, this, and this, which is the exact same thing that they were doing back then. I mean, these ain't laws. These are man-made ideas of what this religion can be. And as you see with today, Christianity is not unison on what these laws should be. And here you look here. At this time frame, the Pharisees are also not unison. You got two strong ideas of what was righteous or not. And I think it's interesting that the two are actually jockeying between the, the two different ideas. I mean, they're, they're playing politics. I mean, to kind of get their view heard. Yeah. Now, those are good thoughts. I've encountered several people who have told me that we're still supposed to be following all of those 613 laws. And they're not eating pork. We had a friend in high school who didn't eat pork still. We had a guy at the brewery, and he was still trying to follow all 613 laws. I was at a concert downtown. Somebody gave me a track, and it was about how we were, we were supposed to stop eating meat or stop eating pork. So all of this has just made me aware that most of us today 
are missing some of the cultural background of their laws and situations. That's kind of intrigued me. I'm like, oh, I've heard a lot of Christians tell me what they think about these laws. And I just realized we're not very well educated on the background of this stuff. So I'm going to have to revisit some of that. The 613, is are those part of Christianity? That's a good question because, so the 613 laws were given back then to the Jewish people and they were following them. In Christianity, when Jesus makes the new covenant, he basically tells them that they don't have to follow all those laws anymore. I mean, if you're going to be a Jew, I think I think some of the Jews still were, but like Peter it has a vision where he's told he can start eating meat. So he starts eating meat. In Christianity, a lot of those laws were temporary. I guess there's some that are considered moral law. And kind of the idea behind them is God hasn't necessarily changed his mind about right or wrong, but he handles these situations maybe differently. What do you guys think? Is that familiar to you or do you have different perspectives on it? I'm on line 50 of 613 of the rules, so... We read them at Brewery Church just out of curiosity a couple of weeks ago, and mm-hmm. there are some really peculiar ones. Show them no favor, no mercy. Yeah. But it also says not to oppress the weak. Yeah. You know, not to commit slander. Um, nobody's doing that. Don't contact the dead. Don't use mediums. Don't talk to wizards. That's awesome. Is <laughs> there <laughs> so anything about, about aliens in there, Nick? Dude, I'm going to find it. I actually observed a paranormal investigation last weekend at a really old house in Wichita. So I may have been in the room when one of those laws was broken. <laughs> and I was I was actually thinking, it was like when I went to this, I was like, oh, I'm not going to see anything. Nothing's going to happen. And about halfway through, I'm like, oh, crap, we're contacting the dead, aren't we? Like, I got to get out of here. <laughs> Dude, rule number 70, men must not wear women's clothes. Rule 71, women can't wear men's clothes. What about unisex t-shirts? If you look at 119, 119 stands out to me. That totally looks man-made. 119, it says, families shall pay an annual tax. I mean, to me, it seems like that's not something God was really concerned about, people paying the taxes. Mm-hmm. So, I mean. And- A half shekel yeah, temple half tax. Shekel. Can I get the uh, financial breakdown between a shekel and a dollar (laughs) see it wouldn't surprise me if these were just court rulings for their society not that there might not be some value to some of them but there is a view one one guy who came to brewery church had this view that all 613 of those laws came from god and were written by god on the ten commandment slabs that'd be pretty small how small is he writing yeah (laughs) with a laser that is a view out there, and I guess that view would surprise me. The rapist must marry the maiden. <laughs> yeah, I remember that one, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that's supposed to be a deterrent. But I actually know one guy who became an atheist because of that law, because he read that. To take procedures against a suspected adulteress. What's a procedure? Procedures? Oh. Yeah, I'll give you some procedures. So I don't necessarily think that these are are, are court rulings. I think this is the Pharisees making these up just to keep people in line. Like the the priests? Yeah. I mean, I guess they could have used their own little religious courts, but they have to have something to, I mean, if you have this codified law or these written down laws, then it makes it easier for the courts to rule on things. So someone's going to have to make these laws 
in, in the beginning, if that kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm. Laws 139 through 156, all about which parts of the family you should not have relations with. It's about incest, yeah. <laughs> but but 139 to 156, there are 17 religious laws outlining who and how you should not have sex with your family. Not to be outdone, it does say, following that, don't hook up with a beast. Oh, so so that's really interesting because uh, oh, this is a total tangent. I won't bring that up. (laughs) Sorry, sorry, back on track. My bad. So if you're apparently according to one sixty six, if you're a bastard, you can't be a child of Israel. You can't become an Israelite. No, okay. That's probably the type of thing that President Shimon wanted to reform. That's interesting that. That guy said in the show that the law was unfair. Because when we look at these laws now, we're like, what in the world? These don't seem quite right in today's situation. So I think that's interesting. 183, you can eat insects, flying insects, as long as they're clean. They're probably really short on food. I should mention that one of the uh, Christian perceptions of these laws is that they're intended to teach the people about holiness or God being holy or pure. And I guess I can see that. Now, some of them I can't quite figure out how they're supposed to play into that, but that's a view that should be considered when studying this. So they didn't need chicken legs back then? Yeah, Rule 194, that's BS. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No thigh muscles? No roast beef? I mean, no... (laughs) Well, you guys want to go on to the big yeah. scene between Mary and Jesus? We, we probably should, yeah. All right, so Mary returns to camp. Simon and Matthew successfully find her and bring her back to Jesus. And when we get back, they're in the middle of a whole situation because John the Baptist has just been arrested and sentenced to life in prison. So everybody's kind of grieving over that when Mary walks into the tent with Jesus and they have a conversation. I really liked, you know, the part where they're talking about forgiveness and, you know, Mary's feeling guilty and, and just stating, well, I'm not worthy. I, I'm not worthy. And he's like, you've been forgiven. Like it wouldn't be much of a, a forgiveness if it went away that easily. I really liked that. I, I thought that was a pretty powerful statement. I think her thinking too, because before... When back in the alley again, she said she was broken and Jesus fixed her. Now she's broken again. She didn't think she's going to be forgiven or any of that. And so he did. And it wasn't even really an issue for him. He was like, oh, okay. Yeah, it's interesting how both their perspectives were different. Because she says, he already fixed me once. No, I can't be fixed again or he shouldn't have to or something like that. I like that he said, I don't require much. When Jesus is talking to Mary, he said, I don't require much because she's saying, I can't do it. I can't do all this stuff. Now, that's a really interesting thing to build into this episode since we're just talking about all those laws. And here he says, I don't require much. So I'm wondering if that's supposed to be a commentary on all these laws and all this stuff people were supposed to do. So is Matthew like Mary? I kind of got that vibe too. I mean, the way he was talking with um, Simon there, I mean, he was like going into detail on her long hair and all that. Then he was also kind of being a little creepy there when Jesus in the tent. He was like spying, just kind of listening in. Yeah, at the beginning of the episode, he says, 
He's trying to describe how she looks. Very nice to look at. Yeah. <laughs> Very pleasant to look at. Oh, yeah. We didn't talk about that when the way he got everyone's attention in the, the bar or whatever. Excuse me. Oops. <laughs> Ooh, question. John the Baptist was sentenced to life in prison. Yep. But he's, he, how does that go from that to being killed? I believe Herodias. I can't remember if it's his uh, wife or his daughter. Thought it was his wife. Yeah. She wants to ask the, his head as the wedding gift. Yeah, Herodias requests John the Baptist's head on a platter. So he's in prison, and someone's just like, "Man, he, he needs to die." Yeah, he's not sentenced to death, but then this lady is upset because John disproved of their marriage. Oh, way to kick a man when he's down. I'm pretty sure it's the daughter of his wife that requested it, but at the mother's request. I'll have to go back and read that. When she's also in this scene, I'm getting out of it, is when Mary first enters the tent, Jesus is kind of on his knees facing the back wall. I'm getting, he already knows about John and all that. You know, we, we don't talk about before he's getting kind of anxious or he's got some distraught because he knows what's coming. And so to me, it looks like he's kind of a little bit, I want to say upset, but he's a little bit distraught at this time frame when Mary walks into the tent. I mean, he kind of stands up and then that's kind of the vibe I'm getting out of that. Like he's kind of like, you know, it's starting, the bad stuff's coming. I feel like he was so like, like you said, emotionally impacted. And then he finds out they're out of food and he's like, well, let's go find some. And that's when he walks into the church and just lays it down and starts unloading on these people. I, I feel like he walked out happier than he walked in. So I feel like he kind of takes out some of his emotions on that. That's a good point. Yeah, I thought Jesus had actually been crying when Mary walked into the tent, just looking at his eyes. Yeah. So they're in Jericho. They found Mary in Jericho. But Jesus is going to make the comment while they're on the way to their next location, which is Wadi Kelt. He's going to make the comment that Mary was not welcome in the synagogue in Jericho. And he's kind of ticked off about that. She was seeking help and they didn't refuse her. Yeah. Next, Jesus says he's basically hungering for a small town, feeling nostalgic. So they go to this place, Wadi Kilt, and walk into the synagogue. We've got a guy reading the law. Does anybody remember what he was reading when, when they walked in? I need to know where that's at in the Bible. What the guy was reading? It's some of those, some of those laws, Old Testament laws. It was like what to do, what not to do type stuff, and he was... And it was talking about like who certain people aren't allowed in the temple. Yeah. It's like, what? Yeah. To the 10th generation. Yeah, that's kind of extreme, wasn't it? To the 10th generation? A thousand years? Oh, that's that one you brought up earlier. So somebody 200 years ago does something bad, you're still banished? Yeah. Isn't that that law that you said, like, if you're a bastard, you can't go into the synagogue? Yeah. <laughs> you can't be a part of Israel. You can't be Israel. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that's sad. Because that's not that person's fault. Whoever's yeah. your parents, like it's not like he can help it. When you get to this scene here, what do you guys think about that special effects? There must be a lot of people donating money. <laughs> I, I was impressed. I, when he starts doing it, I was like, man, this is going to get real terrible. But they, I think they pulled it off pretty well. Yeah. I was like, he got CGI now? I was like, wow. Yeah, it's better than After Effects. Yeah. Microsoft Paint. <laughs> I like that once he gets it out, Jesus is like, go ahead, stretch it out. Yeah. Need to work it out a little bit. Like, All right, Jesus, the athletic trainer. <laughs> I love how he just ignores the guy that's reading the scroll when he's like, hey, stop. That's one of those rules, too. Because then 
he says to Jesus, so are you a healer? I'm assuming he's assuming is the guy a doctor or something to that effect. And so then apparently you can't be doing any healing on the Sabbath. And so I'm like, really? So someone's hurt your doctor. You can't help this person on the, I'm sorry, you cut your hand. We'll stitch it up tomorrow. It has to be life-saving, right? You can only life-savingly heal someone. Right. Well, couldn't this qualify like emotionally as life-saving? Because if my hand was all messed up, I mean, not everybody would be this way, but I think I'd be pretty depressed. <laughs> only if it was my good hand. <laughs> so that's interesting. I guess here here comes the opening scene back into the plot. This is where they connect. Because that precaution of fish clause. I could see how it could apply, and I could see how people might think it doesn't. So it's kind of a gray area. Now, this priest guy who's been reading the scroll, he does not want to acknowledge the Pekash Nefesh at all. It doesn't apply to this in his mind. And I think they don't say it again, but because we were shown that at the beginning of the scene, I'm certain that's got to be what plays into the scene here. So there may or may not be a clause that says Jesus didn't actually break these laws. Because I I was always under the impression that Jesus showed up and just started breaking some of these laws. Well, now, like, I could see this moment either way. Do you think Jesus actually broke the law or not by healing this guy? Because they're going to say, well, it wasn't life-threatening. I mean, he's not going to be there tomorrow, so he can't do it. What do you think? It's all a matter of interpretation. I mean, we're looking at it. That's just kind of religion in general. It's a matter of interpretation. This is definitely an unclear situation. Yeah, I, I kind of took it as, especially this scene, and then once they actually leave and they're in the field walking, part of it was kind of like he's looking for a fight almost, but it, it's on these obscure principles that just don't make a lot of sense. You know, the priests are very stringent on, this is not, not allowed, it's forbidden. He's like, okay, <laughs> I did it. What are you going to do? <laughs> yeah. Kind of plays back into what you said, Nathan, where it's it's laying the groundwork to say that, like, this is a new time. The rules are going to change. It's going to be this. Forget those 613. They're going to be new rules. I don't think he actually broke the rules. I think he just gave the rules a different interpretation. So you got that, like you said, that gray area there of he didn't necessarily break them. He just, in his mind, he didn't break them. He just had a different interpretation of what they meant. Yeah. So that's a new thought that I had watching the show. It's interesting. Cause, so the show maybe changed my mind about that. Even if it's a gray area, right? I feel like the religious person who says, oh, no, you can't help that person and starts to crack down on Jesus. Like that person's a serious jerk, aren't they? Like, you really can't let this slide. <laughs> okay. So they leave and the disciples and Jesus are walking out through the field and Simon is so hungry that he takes some of the wheat and eats it, and everybody freezes. And I don't know if you knew that there was a, a law, one of those laws again, that you can't harvest grain on the Sabbath. They were supposed to do it on the other days and then save their meal so they didn't have to you know, harvest on the Sabbath. Now, my first question is, he's just grabbing some grain with his hands. Does this qualify as harvesting? He picked it off the plant. Okay. Because I mean, I guess nowadays when I think of harvest, it's like you get your giant combine and you go down through the whole field. <laughs> this is interesting because this is somebody else's field, right? But back then, people were supposed to leave the edges of their field for travelers and the poor 
to be able to come harvest the extras and the edges. That plays into this. So the disciples come by and they are eating this. And here come those crazy religious priests <laughs> that come out there to chase the disciples. They get on them about eating this grain. Well, the priests in and of themselves, I, I thought were entertaining in the sense that they were like, get out, wait, don't go, like, get out, don't, no, stay. <laughs> like, and it, it was just, you could tell that they're so used to being kind of like in control of the situation that they didn't know what to do with themselves. I like that they asked for his name and where he was from, because I got a feeling there's going to be a 614th law where Jesus and all of his name to the 10th generation are not going to be allowed in the church. Yeah, They're probably going to report him. So what was he said at the end? He said he was the, the son of man, and everybody all freaked out. Son of man, yes. Yeah, It's a title that comes from the book of Daniel. I actually wrote that down because that's a big deal in the book of Daniel. That comes from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. And it says this. This is what ticked off the religious leaders. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, which is another name for God, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that the peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. All people. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So basically, that title in Daniel is attributed to someone who's going to be the king of the universe. Jesus strolls in and uses that title. That's a threat to them in their mind, and they're really upset because Jesus is calling himself king of the universe. I feel like this is like a Thanos-type situation. <laughs> Say more. I'm just being, being smart because you know, Thanos is trying to... Well, Thanos wasn't trying to be king. He was just trying to knock half the population out to save resources, but still. I still like this analogy. <laughs> yeah, we just talked about that at Brewery Church. Spiritual themes in Infinity War. We just watched The Eternals the other night, and it's... Uh, was it... Amel oh, God, I can't think of the guy's name. The big red guy. Amelish? Oh, I don't know. I haven't seen it yet. Oh, well, he's a... Uh, Centennial? Celestial? Yes, thank you. Yeah, I, I wanted to watch that because it has a lot of like Greek mythology in it, right? I thought that might have some interesting spiritual ideas in it. Yeah, King of the Universe, Celestials, same thing. Well, you guys want to give your final thoughts on this episode? What did you think of it? What stuck out to you, and do you recommend it? I thought it was all right. I was a little bit let down with the Mary storyline. I, I don't know. I was just expecting her to go crazy and was kind of as terrible as that sounds like I was prepared to watch a train wreck and uh, I get there and it's like, Oh, this is a fender bender. Like, uh, but I, I did like how it ended. I thought that was a, a pretty cool ending still better than season one. So, <laughs> but it, this one definitely wasn't like one of my all time favorites or anything like that. I think it just kind of keeps getting better. I mean, I kind of agree with John. She just went gambling. She drank some. It wasn't really nothing extreme. But it seems like with the little special effects thing, with the little claw, the hand, and all that. I'm like, oh wow, okay. You know, it seems like they're improving as you kind of kind of go on. Kind of was it kind of like Total Recall with the guy as the hand coming out, you know, the drop the taxi driver. But I was like, whoa, man, we're getting fancy now. So 
the channel I watched it on, I watched it on the BYU channel, which is the, the Mormon channel, because it was free. And as soon as the series was over, Dallas Jenkins was asking for money. I was like, oh, he got he's, he's money for special effects. And so, <laughs> I'm, I'm still waiting on the donkey DeLorean, you know, once it hits 88 miles per hour, see what happens. <laughs> I'm waiting to actually see one of those evil spirits. Because we've only seen a possessed person. We haven't seen a spirit, like, come out of a person. And they're probably holding that until they have enough money to do that right. Yeah. That's season five. Yeah. Look at George Lucas to help him out with that one there. Right. Right. A little J.J. Abrams help. All right, Nick. Tell me your thoughts. Still better than the Children in the Field episode. So we're, we're, we're doing well there. I do think, like you guys said, there, there was a lot of potential for the Mary storyline. It was still pretty severe for that time, but still could have been. They could have gone down that rabbit hole a lot more and made it a little more entertaining. But like, like Jason said... It continues to get better. It continues to get more and more interesting. So I'd, I'd recommend this episode and this whole season, really. Cool. I felt like you guys did about the Mary storyline. I have never been so hooked as at the end of the previous episode. I'm like, oh, what's going to happen with her? <laughs> like, how bad's it going to get? And then to get to this episode, I think it was part the acting. She just didn't sell me on that sorrow and like the transformation. I think if her acting had been on par with the last few episodes, it would have been fine. But something just wasn't fully clicking here. I think the script was good. I think the writing was good. But maybe I would have been happier like if she'd gone a little bit more crazy. But yeah, I was a little bit let down by the resolution there because it had this potential to be like pretty powerful. And the second time I watched it, it was better. But the first time I was a little bit let down with that part. Now, from that point on, the end of the episode, I thought was awesome. I love that showdown. And I kind of felt like Jesus was just kind of sick of the religious people and and how they're treating people and stuff. I thought that was really fun to kind of see him just kind of (laughs) whatever and ignore them. And on second viewing, you know, when I started to notice some of the connections between the David situation at the beginning and the law and what Shimon's representative said about reforming the law, and I'm, I'm seeing all these connections surrounding the law all the way through the episode. I think that was really interesting, and that was a good hook. The only thing I might say is that introduction scene. I mean, I know quite a bit about the background there, and I still had to watch that like three times to figure it out. So maybe they could have given us a little bit more to explain that, because if I was lost... I mean, it all happens so fast. If I'm lost, then I know that most other people are also lost. (laughs) But overall, yeah, I'd say it's pretty good. I was hoping this one would be a little bit better. The storyline with John the Baptizer, I would like to have seen at least a scene where he got arrested or something. Yeah. I'm still hoping that we see him again in that. If his death in that situation is all off screen, I think I might be a little bit bummed. I mean, I could understand it if they're trying to show it from the disciples' perspectives and they don't see him again. But still, when stuff happens off screen, that's kind of like a rule of movies that you don't do that, right? Show, don't tell. One of the things when Dallas watches this, I I hope he takes some criticism here, but uh, I was talking to a friend of mine who's seen the show. One of the things that I think would be really helpful would be to note some of the biblical references 
that are being used throughout the the episode, uh, especially on those opening scenes where it's like flashbacks to Old Testament. Uh, just list the scripture, you know, give me some direction there so I can find it easier. <laughs> kind of like the words coming down on Star Wars. Or, or like out. <laughs> That's a good idea. Well, cool. Sounds like we're still all enjoying the show. I'm looking forward to the next episode. We've only got two episodes left in this season. Moving along. Well, thank you guys for joining me. Send us your comments. We'll give you a shout out. We haven't had anybody give us any comments or questions for a while. So we will discuss your thoughts on the next episode. Email us at breweryministries at gmail.com or contact us on Facebook or Instagram at breweryministries. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Brewery Ministries Discussion Podcast on The Chosen. If you enjoyed this podcast, help spread the word by leaving a five-star review in the Apple Podcast Store, Stitcher, or your podcast store of choice. That's why they call me White Hands, because of what I do to your liver. Contact us on the Brewery Ministries Facebook page, on Instagram at Brewery Ministries, or at breweryministries.org. Send us your questions and comments so we can talk about them on the podcast. It's not enough to say hello. Visit one of our spiritual discussion groups at a brewery or online. Visit breweryministries.org for a list of our discussion groups. You can also download our free discussion guides on spiritual themes in the Book of Mark, the Dark Knight Trilogy, or the Avengers movies at breweryministries.org. That those who do the actual fishing are unholy, foul-mouthed, given to gambling and secret dens, and even fishing on Shabbat. The opinions shared in this podcast are the views of the individual hosts and may not reflect the views of Brewery Ministries Incorporated. Why must I perform? First I perform for Quintus, you taught for God's soldiers, law. then for, for the slum dwellers. And this, what, what sort of performance is this? All music and sound clips included in this podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders. They're included here for the purpose of review, and no infringement is intended. Fear not. For I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are